Tonight, we've reached a milestone in our nation's march toward a more perfect union. The first time that a major party has nominated a woman for president. There is nobody that respects women more than I do. Human rights are women's rights, and women's rights are human rights once and for all. I have such respect for women. I cherish women. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. I'm going to take such good care of women's health care issues, you won't even believe it. Do you believe in punishment for abortion, yes or no, as a principle? Uh, the answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. This is the legacy of Hillary Clinton. Death, destruction, terrorism, and weakness. Well, I think the only card she has is the woman's card. If fighting for affordable childcare and paid family leave is playing the woman card, then deal me in. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. She has tremendous hate in her heart. She's crooked Hillary, don't you understand that? It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. Every woman lied when they came forward to hurt my campaign. The race between Trump and Clinton in 2016 was supposed to divide the genders across the country. Women would vote Hillary and men would vote Donald. That was the main idea. That was supposed to happen. But instead, the vote divided women by race, education, geography and marriage. While 94% of black women voted for Clinton, 53% of white women voted Trump. And this is really the main question for me. Why are white married women voting conservatively and do they see their own fate as linked to the fate of other women? How did Trump win over women that had so much in common with Hillary? Hillary lost the white married woman's vote. She's a white married woman herself, so how did the electorate that have the most in common with her choose somebody like Trump? Women are playing an increasingly critical role in politics. In the US, women make up the majority of the population. They have high voting participation rates, and on average, they tend to vote more liberally. I'm Alice, and you're listening to Shut Up, She's Talking. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Leah Rupana, a sociologist who has studied the married white woman's vote in the US leading up to and following the Trump election. My name is Leah Rapanner. I am an associate professor of sociology at the University of Melbourne and the co-director of the Policy Lab. I spoke with Leah over Zoom before our current positions in isolation made us all these savvy video calling Zoom extraordinaire quiz master and Friday night drinks hosts that we are now. I wasn't a Zoom extraordinaire back then, and the internet is a little shaky at times, so please forgive me. I was not a master, but to be honest, you'll barely notice. Leah's research focuses on gender, work and family. 
and she's especially interested in the characteristics and institutional barriers to gender inequality and how to alleviate them so that we can all live in a more just world. Leah, that, I mean, I love you already. That just sounds wonderful. Um, but I've always had this love of, of how groups of individuals work and why are we patterned in the way we are patterned and how does that explain how we view the world? So I'm a lifelong sociologist. Today, we're going to narrow things down a little bit and we're going to be speaking about one study of hers in particular that was overlooked when it should have been the centre of discussion and debate before 2016 and the Trump election. One of my colleagues has has done a lot of work on uh, racial minorities' sense of linked fate or the idea that certain groups tend to feel or have this sense of connection to people of their group and that that leads them to behave or act in ways that are consistent and in particular in terms of political attitudes. So for example, racial minorities see their futures and fates as tied to other members of that group. So if something bad happens holistically, that is going to have an impact on my life. So whereas I may be, um, you know, have different individual preferences, I'm going to vote consistent with with those of my group because I know that the group is more important than the individual. The American National Election Survey in a one-off in anticipation of the Clinton-Trump election asked this linked fate question of women. So the the question was, um, do you see your future or fate as connected to other women? And if so, to what extent do you view that? So we thought, oh, you know, it'd be kind of interesting to see if gender-linked fate functions the same way as racial-linked fate. And so what we did is we took this data and we looked at the connection between gender, marital status, race, gender-linked fate, and political attitudes. And what we found was that married white women see their futures and fates as less connected to other women. And as a result of that are voting more conservatively they're less likely to see themselves as connected to Democrats. They're more likely to vote for conservative parties. We thought this was really interesting. We tried to publish it. No one cared because everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. And then you have the Trump Clinton election and Hillary Clinton loses. And in particular, she loses amongst white women. So actually what our study was foreshadowing was what was about to happen for the Clinton campaign, even though we and probably they did not realize that we were onto something quite important. So I don't know about anyone listening, but I would have thought that what benefits one woman in one way or another is probably going to benefit us all in some way whether that be having the right medical care or making it easier for mothers to access childcare, ensuring that a woman can be financially independent or just punishing or at least ridiculing men who grab them by the genitalia. I would have thought that we could agree on that. But Leah's research is showing that across the US, that is not something that all women agree with. I think what's been really interesting for us since this study is that, well, okay, so I think there's two things happening. One is that what we were foreshadowing is that this assumption that women are going to see their, are going to vote consistently or vote for the, for the greater good of all women 
is true for some groups, in particular Black women. It doesn't matter if they're married, single, or divorced. They see themselves as more connected to other women, and that, that helps influence their attitudes. The same, interestingly, is true for white, single, or divorced women. So white, single, or divorced women see their futures or fates as tied more to other women, and they also tend to vote more to the left than the right. And what's interesting is we're building on additional research that has shown that the more a woman relies on her own income and salary, the more likely she is to see discrimination or issues around gender inequality. There's something distinct that is happening for white women when they get married. We don't have longitudinal data, but what we're showing is that this group is different than single white women, is different than divorced white women, and is very different than black women for whom marital status doesn't matter. Okay, I promise I'm almost done, but I'm going to say one more thing. Oh, I love it. Keep going. (laughs) And what's been interesting for us is that, you know, we kind of, I think, stumbled upon this relationship that we didn't anticipate. This was not a primary research agenda, right? Like, we didn't Mm. have this big, like, passion to understand this. We just kind of stumbled on it by default. And what we found subsequently is that this relationship Um, helps explain lower abortion support. So we have a recent article that just came out and you can see that white married women, the fact that they feel less connected to other women does explain their preferences for um, pro-life as a pro-choice. They are more conservative on abortion. This at this moment in time, that's really interesting for the U.S. because you have these states that are passing heart bills heartbeat bills. This is the idea that um, they're basically criminalizing abortion, right? Um, In states that are predominantly, uh, that have a high concentration of married white women. So, So it may help explain why in certain states, these are passing by, you know, the majority of the electorate, even though it feels counterintuitive because it feels like it's at the expense of women's interests, right? But in order for you to see that that's important for all women to have a right to abortion. You have to see yourself as connected to all women. So we're finding this kind of very interesting relationship that is structured by both race and marital status. Leah's team found that women on average support abortion more than men. But women with weaker perceptions to gender-linked fate reported lower levels of support for abortion. Trump is anti-abortion and is actually the first US president to ever attend an anti-abortion rally. He's even said that he thinks there should be punishment in place for women who have an abortion. Whatever that reason may be, they should be punished. And so then it's no surprise that since Trump's been in office, over 30 states have introduced some form of an abortion ban in their legislation. This is a direct threat to women's medical needs, social needs and economic needs in the US. Trump's anti-abortion stance is not supported by black and Latina women who show levels of support for legal abortions and that's despite their marital status. So it doesn't matter if they're married, they still show some signs of support there. This pattern has been established at least in the sociological research for say the past 20 years. So it seems because marriage creates a dependency often, not always, right, but often creates a dependency between women on men, in part because women tend to reduce their labor force participation, in particular when they start to have kids. And so what that creates is this kind of economic, they become more economically dependent upon their husbands. 
Um, and it makes sense when you think about it from that perspective that that if I if my family's well-being, I'm a white married woman and my family's well-being is dependent upon my husband being a breadwinner, that any of the kind of threats to his status really have very serious consequences for me because that means that my family is earning less money, can, my children are less well off. And so I would expect actually that this relationship might be actually even more intense than say the 1950s in which you have this kind of class, this real intensification of the breadwinner homemaker divide. I think what is interesting or why this is salient now is because this pattern is having very severe consequences. In particular, you know, polls were totally wrong about Trump ending up in office. And, and interestingly, you have this president who's saying, you know, incredibly misogynistic things that, that should just push women together. So how can you have a president like Trump who's saying things like, you know, you're going to grab women by the genitalia and that doesn't offend all women? Well, it yeah. doesn't offend all women if their primary orienting ideology is not around connection to other women, but it's around how do we how do I protect my breadwinning husband? You see it around the intensification around the Me Too campaign too, right? Why is there backlash amongst some women around the sexual assault and rape? And what you see is some women are saying, hey, watch out, you're coming for my son. It's at the expense of my son. It's the expense of my husband. And so I think there are questions around which women are saying that. Is this about this kind of lack of connection to other women? Is it because there's a preference, there is kind of the orienting ideology amongst certain groups of women is that it's actually most important to protect the men in my life, because this is very, these are, this is um, tied to the family success and well-being. A study conducted shortly after the Me Too movement gained momentum suggested that women's fear of social exclusion is higher than men's desire to actually exclude them. This is just one study, but it does show that some women's desire to be accepted and rewarded by men is more significant than their willingness their willingness to support women. This fear of social exclusion could also be tied to why women are voting to protect men and to protect that ideology of the traditional gender roles and the dominance of a man in that household with the economic and financial security. Do you think that weak link to gender is something to do with the very motherly need to support and nurture potentially flawed and very unpredictable childlike men sometimes? It's absolutely tied to traditional gender roles. So it's if you have, um, and traditional gender roles seem to permeate amongst some groups and less amongst others. So it is tied 100% to this idea that men are the breadwinners and that that is what is effective for the functioning of the family. And you can see since the 1970s that men's status is actually eroded, in particular college educated white white men, right? So you're seeing a flat line in returns to earnings. So men are earning less mm. or, or the return, you know, they're kind of their salaries haven't increased in the US since the 1970s is pretty flat. So you are seeing actually on some level men under threat, right? Women have moved into the labor market at higher rates. Um, uh, you have a Me Too campaign that's that's actually really shifted the cultural narrative around sexual assault, victimization, um, and this notion that you need to believe the women. So there's all this accumulation of events that are actually very, very threatening to the status of, of men. And so 
how are people responding to that? Mm. And I think that is a really interesting empirical question that's, that's quite timely that's happening right now that's distinct from any other period of time, in part because you have women accessing higher levels of education. You know, women are getting college degrees at higher rates. Can I, can I give like an anecdotal story? Absolutely. Okay, so I was having this conversation with um, a very successful female executive. And she asked me, why are you studying this kind of research, right? Like, what is it about gender that you think is so interesting? Or why are you in this area? And I responded and said, I think for women of my generation, and I'm in my 30s, right? So I am barely a millennial, but also not quite a Gen Gen Y, um, that we were told from, from a very young age that the world was equal. And if you just tried hard enough, and got your college education and, you know, really quote unquote leaned into your careers that you would have great success. I think what happened with the election of Trump was that it was clear to some segment of the population that actually the world is not equal. Misogyny and patriarchy still exist in very meaningful and consequential ways. And I think that really disrupted, like made uh, uh, people quite angry like it was kind of like you were sold an image of your life and then you show up and it's like okay that was wrong and what was interesting to her was she said oh that it she's her response was when I was coming up we knew that the world was unequal we knew that men were had power and you just had to kind of bide your time until you you kind of oh you had to bide your time you knew it you documented you remembered and then you used whatever information you had later for a later date to kind of address the patriarchy or inequality that was happening in the workplace or whatever. And then I think the question is like, which group, what's, which groups are feeling this way or how is this being divided? It, is it true in Australia? Is it true in the US? Is this kind of a Western industrial thing? Is it that this is tied to certain age brackets? Is this an education thing? What is happening right now I think is distinct in terms of this like political and social mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and economic. And oh, God. yeah, and with the economic side of things, so so white women in the West are more financially and economically independent than potentially ever before. So do you think this has also an effect on how they're voting and, and whether they're voting conservatively or not? Absolutely, except for that they're, in, they're often independent financially up until the point at which children enter the scene. The data show that um, women's participation in the labor market is pretty much on parity to men's. And this is absolutely true in Australia. So women's economic participation is on parity to men's until children are in the household, at which women tend to reduce their work time and men tend to increase. Australia is a particular case because they have some of the highest rates of part-time maternal employment in the world. So in particular, in Australia, this kind of traditionalization of economic labor is really, really tied to the presence of children. And so I think women can have all the education, they can lean into their careers, they can have um, high rates of employment, they can be moving into professional positions, they can be moving into the managerial positions, but we have not, in terms of policy or social norms, figured out that kind of puzzle around children. What happens when kids are there in incredibly demanding and who takes the responsibility for that labor. And so this is where you see kind of this traditionalization or women become more dependent on men financially. And interestingly, over time, this can be incredibly damaging. There's a huge percentage of women in Australia who have zero superannuation at the point of retirement. And if you have something like a divorce that comes in and you have, um, 
basically relied on your partner, your husband's income for a long period of time, this puts women in a very, very precarious situation. Leah and her team found out that married women end up with a larger share of the household work, even when their earnings exceed their husbands. Okay, what? So even when they are the breadwinners of the family and they buck the gender stereotype to be the breadwinner, they still fall into that role that society has carved out for them as the homemaker and housewife. For married white and Latina women, economic dependence on husbands appears to suppress perceptions of gender-linked fate, and on the whole, it lessens their sense of belonging to the broader female community. But black women are more likely than any other racial group to be the primary breadwinner in their families. Black women's historical position as the breadwinner makes them uniquely positioned to see their fate as tied to other women. And so because they have that unique position, they want to vote in the way that women are going to be more financially independent, to be more economically secure. And so despite marital status, black women have a strong gender-linked fate. They look to vote for what will benefit their gender as a whole. As we know now, for many women in the US and all over the world, marriage ties them financially to their husbands, which means they come to view any change in men's economic dominance as a threat to their family. Leah and her team know that this isn't the case for single or divorced women who are more likely to live in poverty, work in insecure jobs and, through economic instability, have a stronger gender-linked fate. Conservative parties are winning elections across the globe and maintaining their positions of power election after election. The middle and the upper classes aren't making room for any new conservative voters. They're not expanding the West Wing of Castle A to to fit anyone else in. And we're not getting any richer as a whole. But still, the electorate continues in many cases to vote against their own interest and for these conservative parties. There is a theory that could explain why even though more money isn't coming, even though job security is a long way away and a stable economy, I mean, has that ever happened? I mean, I don't know. The working and lower middle classes continue to vote for these conservative parties who make all the promises and are yet to deliver. And the theory is called false class consciousness. It's the belief that the working classes have bought into the idea of success and capitalism and vote aspirationally rather than voting to reflect their current situation. They're voting for their richer, happier future selves where they have a cool job, a bigger house, a couple of cars, they're going on holiday a couple of times a year, life is good. They're voting for the wealthy because they're voting aspirationally rather than realistically. So instead of voting to make their reality a little bit better today and their neighbours' realities a little bit better, 
They're voting for what they want to be. And there's just no real evidence to show that that is working. People tend to actually tend to view themselves in terms of class dynamics as being higher than they are. So they tend to think they tend to think aspirationally rather than in reality. So I may be middle class, but I tend to think I am aspirationally upper middle class and therefore I'm going to tie my interests or or you know voting patterns, my preferences, my desires to this aspirational class, right? So I think one of the things is is that sometimes it's unclear why people vote against their own self-interest, right? So mm. you have in the U.S., for example, healthcare is really contentious. Well, I'm paying I I'm paying healthcare from three dimensions in the U.S. I'm paying it from my own for my own personal self because I'm holding my own private coverage, but I'm also through my tax dollars paying for people who cannot afford the healthcare, right? So for me, actually, it, to vote on my own self-interest would be to say, I actually don't want a, a health, I, would, I don't want Medicare, I don't want Medicaid, I don't want any public option, I just actually want to pay my own health care, which I do through my employer, and you should pay your own health care through your own employer. So that would actually economically benefit me. Ideologically, I think that there's a, there's a preference for, I'd rather actually the poorest or the most vulnerable to have as many resources as possible. But what's interesting about the healthcare stuff is often those who are actually the most poor and the most vulnerable and to vote against it because they think that it shows that they are not self-sufficient. I think we've stigmatized public assistance so much that it's hard to actually be the person who needs a public assistance. The problem is, is that most of us take public assistance all the time through, through education, through driving on the roads that we drive on that are maintained by the cities, through taking the public transport, we are the epitome of quote unquote on the dole people, right? Because I'm getting a tax rebate for when I fly internationally. And so I think there is such a stigma around welfare that even though we're all kind of welfare recipients that I think drives a false class consciousness or, or is unfair to those who actually really need and results in voting patterns against things that be quite productive for society more generally economically boosting and help those who are the most vulnerable. Mm. And one of the things, okay, I just have to say this because this is my like PSA that I say in every interview. I think the other thing that is particularly I'm quite passionate about is this notion that there are things that we're willing to, to pay for as a public good. So we think it's important that we have roads. We think it's important that we have hospitals. We think it's important that we have public education because we want an educated population. But when things come for in particular for women and in particular for women with young children, i.e. childcare, i.e. parental leave, that these are things we say that should be reconciled with by the family and the individual. Uh, I think it's important to shift thinking around things that are particularly damaging to women in terms of their careers, in terms of their stress levels. And, and that, is partic that is that period of time from zero to five, in which families have limited or few resources to really support that critical life transition that's incredibly stressful, incredibly hard, emotionally, physically draining. And we've kind of said, okay, that period of time is for you to figure out, but we'll pick it up from say five till, till later in life. And that I think is deeply problematic. We know that 53% of white women voted Trump. They were the silent voters, the voters that Trump didn't direct any legislation towards. So how was anyone to know that these women would be voting Trump in their droves and ultimately swing the election for him? 
He addressed his rallies like a bull ready to charge. He didn't come in with any like suave or charm to flirt his way to the top. Alternatively, his behaviour was so gross towards women that everyone thought Hillary would have nailed it and that the next president of the United States was going to be a woman. But maybe the people who thought that just weren't paying close enough attention to what the working class of America were actually saying, what they actually wanted. Trump did tailor his campaign to the white working class men. He wanted to win over this electorate, so he promised to revive the coal industry and jumpstart US manufacturing. Once in office, Trump broke both of those promises. And so I wonder whether this group of voters who are still buying and investing into the American dream wonder if they've been scammed at all. The American dream is the perfect disguise for the false class consciousness. Convince the electorate they should vote for a dream. Yeah, that'll win it for you. And not just that, but the American dream is tied in with patriotism and so together you have this unshakable idea that if you work hard, you'll get paid well and riches will come. And if you're poor, you're not working hard enough. There's an Australian dream as well, which is the same sort of idea. And I think everyone in the UK has that same capitalist dream. You often have this social insecurity, kind of anxiety in periods of time in which you have multiple dimensions of social change happening simultaneously. So at this moment in time, you're having a declining fertility rate. You're having this intensification of globalization, which makes people more economically precarious. You have women accessing higher levels of education more so than in the past. You have this disruption of kind of gender roles about what does it mean to be a man or a woman, right? Like you have the shifting of um, away from a traditional kind of breadwinner homemaker model. And that all of this culmination of major social change in the same period of time creates anxiety within the population and they tend to go more right or more kind of um, populist. And so I think you're seeing that now. I think what's happening in particular for white men and white working class men is you're seeing the returns, the the earnings, like what they can do. They are not the group that is traveling the world, moving to Singapore to get the high high paying banking job, right? This is a group whose kind of um, the economic prospects are deteriorating, which is rising inequality. You have the rising cost of living and wages aren't keeping up with that. And that's incredibly stressful to feel like I'm working full-time, I'm working as hard as I can, and yet I can't support my family economically mm. creates an incredible sense of anxiety, and that's that's legitimate. And so I think the right perhaps has been more effective in talking about those anxieties or offering solutions to those anxieties. Mm. And And the other thing is that there's often not simple solutions. So this idea that if we could just solve this by closing our borders, I mean, you can't solve the culmination of all those factors moving simultaneously with one solution. So it's hard to explain that what's happening is a a confluence of multiple social factors changing simultaneously, that really perhaps there's not a simple solution. And I think the right right is better at offering kind of uh, clear but simple solutions to what are very complex economic problems. What will happen with this research now? This information is public. It's out there. 
Campaigns before now haven't really considered white married women swinging elections. I asked Leah what might happen if a party began to fine-tune its messaging to take advantage of what we know now about how white conservative women vote in the US. We're trying to do a little bit of research to see if certain messaging is more effective in kind of shifting women away, closer to or away from other women. So do they, is there a way in which you can present certain messages that intensify or reduce women's perceptions of gender-linked fate, and in particular amongst white women, right? So we're seeing this, this white married women are a distinct group. And so are there certain messages that they're particularly salient to? So we've done a little bit of research on this. It's very preliminary um, and we're going to do more. But some of what we're finding is that the messaging around victimization of men. So this idea that men might be victims of um, wrongful accusations of assault or that men can't make enough money because women have stepped into the labor market, that these are shifting married white women more more as, as seeing le- themselves less connected to other women. And so I think that type of messaging is what you hear coming through pretty clearly and pretty loudly through a lot of the right-wing media sources. So, so I think, yeah, we have to be a bit careful about how we frame these issues because they can have big impact. I think there's a very good chance that parties will begin fine-tuning messaging on the campaign trail to reflect this new data. Could we start seeing more conservative laws around women's freedom? If the dominance of men is a more important ideology to protect than the equality and freedom for women, might this start reflecting campaign promises? Will women's rights begin to deteriorate in front of our very eyes, approved and signed off by other women? That's a terrifying thought. You know, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but what I decided to do was to fulfill my profession, which I entered before my husband was in public life. That statement would haunt Hillary for the rest of her professional career and perhaps was the first time she really lost white married conservative women across America. In 1992, during Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, Hillary Clinton's statement of, well, I could have been a housewife and had teas and cake, but I had better things to do. I'm paraphrasing, by the way really hurt her position in the 90s. She also made it known that as the first lady, she would want to push some of her ideologies and her ideas onto her husband, that being Bill Clinton, the president of the United States. This didn't sit well with voters either, and it angered them and potentially angered them enough to hold a grudge. The false assumption that women will vote for women has been proven wrong time and time again. And now it seems that your racial group can have an impact on your gender-linked fate too. The white woman's identity places her in a position of privilege and oppression. She's granted privilege because of her race and at the same time excluded from the party because of her gender. 
In politics, where racism and misogyny are deeply ingrained, the white woman must choose to be loyal to either the powerful aspect of her identity, her whiteness, or to be loyal to her less powerful aspect of her identity, her gender. Researchers suggest that some white women lean more into racism in an attempt to avoid the reality of the oppression put on them based on their gender. No other race and gender group is so wholly divided when it comes to voting in the interest of women as white women. And women shouldn't have to all vote the same. I mean, when race, class, geography, sexuality, social and economic backgrounds are all entirely different, how can we vote the same? It's just not possible. But a deeper understanding of how women vote is essential to understand politics and whether we are being manipulated with messages that play to our insecurities. Women are an incredibly important electorate that often gets either ignored or overlooked, but they're swinging elections, at least in the US and it appears like in Australia, in ways that are incredibly meaningful. So thinking about the female voter and thinking about how to, how to understand female voter in both countries, both by race, class, gender, location, economic status, and not assuming that um, all women are going to vote in similar ways or, you know, that they're going to move in, in consistent ways in the parties, but actually they are the ones who are starting to, to kind of shift left and right to undulate between the two parties and really have meaningful impact. The majority of white conservative women may have been celebrating the day after Trump's inauguration, on January the 21st, 2017, but that wasn't the case for everyone. The Women's March was a worldwide protest and retaliation to the election of Donald Trump. The day after the inauguration of President Donald Trump, women took to the streets. By accident, Trump's election had created a movement in its own right. Globally, women have come together in solidarity to protest Trump's presidency, his abortion laws, and everything he stands for. Women have united and marched together for each other. The momentum has continued and women have not gone away quietly. Activists have been born and we are now more than ever so conscious of the oppression, racism, and sexism on an everyday level. Is this the start of a revolution? I think so. Our new slogan for 2020, you know what it is? Keep America great. Keep America great. Donald Trump is now rallying to keep America great as he goes head to head with Joe Biden to keep his position in the White House. On November 3rd, 2020, the world will find out how successful he has been in holding the presidency. The polls at the moment favour Joe Biden and the Democrats, but they were wrong last time. They're often wrong, so it's too early to say. And that's the end of this episode of Shut Up, She's Talking. If you're interested in learning more about Leah's work, please check out this week's episode notes as I'll have all the relevant links there to some of her research. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review Shut Up, She's Talking on Apple Podcasts and say hello to us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Shut Up, She's Talking Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.